They took one of you know one of the guys and put him in a freezing cold room, opened all of the windows up, and put him in a torture chair for eighteen hours straight. What, um, what is a torture chair? It is. They call it a restraint chair, but it's a chair that they sit you in. Is 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 it's a very it's very very hard. It's a hard chair, and it has all these straps. It, it looks like something that you might see. You know, somebody get put in in outer space or something. Like it's it's, it's straps here, straps here, straps here, straps here, straps here, straps on your feet, and then you're just like this. You know, for hours. Oh and my hours god. Oof. Yeah. So, so it's like an American Airlines seat, but with restraints. <laughs> Along those lines. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Growing Up Christian. I'm Sam. I'm Casey. And today, Casey is... uh, I think you might have been a participant in it. Today, the day we're recording this, September 22nd, is uh, is see you at the poll. Oh, wow. Time to pray for our great nation in yes. its trying times. You all hold hands, circle. Now, I couldn't participate in it because I wasn't home, because I was homeschooled and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I guess I could have. I don't know if I was allowed to go to schools or not. I think did we talk about this with Aaron when he was uh, a couple like for our fellowship Friday? I feel like we touched yeah. and see you at the poll. Um, but today's the day, and it, I think it should be a national holiday. I feel like uh, it, and in <laughs> honor of it, I think I, I want to actually announce because I've been I've been investing in um, you know I've been you know trying to figure out how to like become an entrepreneur. I'm I, you know I don't want to play the game anymore right you know suck it up just try to climb the corporate ladder so i've I've been working on kind of starting my own business um and i think today's a good day to announce it because in honor of see you at the poll uh, i'm opening a strip club in the in the same name oh wow okay yeah uh, i think that's i think it works i think uh i'm trying to honor america and, and all the people who have prayed for our nation and i think See you at the poll is just you know it's a it's perfect for a perfect name for a strip club. So I I, I want to honor all the thoughts and prayers that have been uttered on this day for. I I like it because it's like it's clever marketing and it also gives you like a almost lie um, get out of jail card for you know scumbag Christian husbands. Yeah yeah like, once where, like, where were you all night. I'm was going it, to see you, at the, see you at the poll. Yes, exactly. See you at the poll at, at, at 10 on a Tuesday. It's all day, baby. See you at the polls all day. You have to pray. all. I mean, if it, it, it works more, the longer you're there and the harder you pray. So, you know, I was there worshiping. They're worshiping. Yeah, they anointed me with cheap perfuming and <laughs> glitter water. <laughs> I lost a few ones, but I gained my soul and it's all worth it. Yeah, they took up a uh, a faith offering during the. It'll be like <laughs> the proceedings. Some, it'll be some patriot theme going on there, dude. Oh my god, I was thinking about this kid this week. I'm I'm taking a quick shift because uh, I used to work with this guy who 
he was young. He was in his early 20s. I mean, that's when I was in my early 20s, but uh, I was probably like 23, 24. And I don't know if he was like army or if he was reserves or something like that, but he was like very, very patriotic. Now, one of the other guys that I worked with had also been in, in the army for a while, but he didn't take anything seriously. He was just a silly ass dude that liked to goof around, make jokes and whatever. He was always fucking with people. And this guy's name that I worked with, uh, I guess it doesn't matter if I say it because I haven't had contact with him in forever. And I don't even remember his last name. And it, nobody knows where it was. His name was Kenny. Kenny was like, sir, yes, sir. Very like rigid guy, like fucking no bullshit. He was a great employee, probably one of the most annoying people there, but easily the best employee. Um, and <laughs> one day I remember, I'm surprised he didn't quit. I felt like he was going to quit because people were just like fucking with him really bad about, oh, would you, uh, would you stay? If someone laid the flag on the ground, would you stand on it for a thousand dollars? Absolutely not. I would never disrespect the flag like that. Like, really getting bothered and then they're like for one million dollars if someone paid you one million dollars would you jerk off onto the flag and he's like i can't even believe you're asking me this right he was like fucking furious like i can hear i'm in my office and he's out in the warehouse and i can hear him like screaming at everybody he's like he's getting worked up and it's like probably five people around like asking him what he would do for money to like deface the american I truly thought there was going to be like a real HR complaint and that people were going to lose their jobs over this because it was relentless. And if I may continue talking, (laughs) uh, this kid, I just think it's also worth pointing out. He brought raw chicken to work and cooked it in the mic, the break room microwave to what and ate it for lunch. Yeah. He cooked raw chicken in the microwave. He took a raw chicken breast out of a Tupperware, threw it on a, paper plate and put it into the break room microwave and put it on until it cooked all the way through. What did that smell like? It wasn't great. I mean, what did it taste like? I mean, who fucking microwaves chicken? (laughs) That's a better question. (laughs) When you defrost chicken in the microwave, dude, which I prefer not to do, but when you do and like the edges cook, every normal person cuts that shit off. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. It's real and, gross. And he did that to the entire chicken. <laughs> <laughs> he just ate edge. I don't even know if he put salt and pepper on it. I think he just fucking microwaved the shit out of it and then ate that like rubbery. And everyone's like, that's disgusting. You're going to wipe out the microwave, dude. And he's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, it's already cooked. There's nothing to wipe. It's cooked. There's nothing. There's no. What do I got to wipe out? We're like, it's just gross. Like, who did he? Like marinated or something like no, that, or no, no. It, I mean, just, just chicken, like a, just plain just, chicken, <laughs> plain chicken breast for like four minutes on high in the fucking break room microwave. Oh man, somebody put that kid in the microwave. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's uh that's bizarre. That's the most disturbing thing I've heard in a while. Yeah, it wasn't great. I don't. People didn't. It, he didn't live that one down, and that was more of a work controversy than what he would do to the flag for a million dollars. <laughs> you want to know like bizarre foods like when my parents well not just my parents really it was like late high school into college and stuff like that like the atkins diet was really big oh yeah atkins is like keto but you could eat just trash as long as it wasn't 
Carby. You know, like people were just like, I go to McDonald's and I order eight orders of bacon and then I eat that for lunch. Yeah. Or with people who go like go to McDonald's on diets and like, like I'll get a McDouble, no bun. And you're like, what are you even here for? Like, <laughs> I don't get it. I remember there was like, my parents would get this. It was like this pre-cooked bacon. It came in yeah. like a. Like a, it was basically like a plastic briefcase. Yeah, you and peel it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's sliced so thin you can see through it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's this is, it's one ply bacon. <laughs> My brother in law put that in the microwave once for like this is what like years ago, but he puts it in the microwave for like ten seconds, heats it up, and like takes it out and goes to eat it. Or probably <laughs> starts to eat it, and everyone's like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "What?" We're like. That's not fully cooked. He goes, yeah, it is. We're like, no, it definitely is not fully cooked. And he's like, are you kidding? We're like, no, absolutely not. And he's like sitting there trying to like eat raw bacon that he just barely warmed up. <laughs> You're not. I, I mean, I don't want to. Th- I'm not a chef, but I don't think that people eat pork tartare. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. I Dude, mean, that shit's cured, of- but not enough. It's not like prosciutto. <laughs> talking about like weird microwave foods do you remember like one of the as seen on tv stuff was huge when we were kids you remember all those different things oh yeah that was like uh sham wow Sham-wow, and oxyclean Oxy-clean, glory days yeah. <laughs> there was kaboom. this one thing oh yeah kaboom is where it's at i use some kaboom i still use oxyclean dude I don't that know shit if I works. Ever used it, but I I will try it now. Thank you for the recommendation. Yeah, there was a uh, there was one of those as seen on TV things, and it was like I don't remember. It was some stupid name. It was like Perfect Egg or Egg Mate or something. But it was like these little. It was like a plastic egg carton. You put the eggs in there, and then you just put them in the microwave, and it was oh like, yeah it cooks a perfect egg every time, and. I remember like during that whole low carb thing, my mom bought those and it was hilarious because it, it it did not work even a little bit. And it literally like every time you put eggs in the microwave in this thing, you started it up and everything seemed normal. And then all of a sudden it was just like, boom, just explosion. <laughs> they do. <laughs> like microwave eggs explode. It's so funny. My mom's like, uh, she is very neat and tidy and clean, you know. I mean, everything's, you know, she just keeps everything perfect. And like that thing going off like a like a uh a roadside bomb in the microwave. <laughs> I just like straight up mom fury. You know about mom fury? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that one got regifted to like my grandparents. <laughs> blow up their microwave the other thing that was like a big like uh i've seen on tv thing um was like a when like household rotisseries became a thing remember that oh yeah that's still a thing oh yeah i i want one now dude i I mean my i had one my mom had one growing up Uh, well not my mom didn't have i growing up at my mom's house my mom had one and we would eat rotisserie chickens all the time see we never had a rotisserie but we did do George Foreman grills, like several iterations of George Foreman grills. Oh yeah, I do. I the first I got a George Foreman 
grill when I was in college and it's, it's like a griddle with a slope. <laughs> I mean, it's what the fuck yeah. is that thing? Yeah. It drains the fat off, which, you know, spoiler alert, the fat's the good part. But also, so does it just a like the funny thing about it being like that was a selling point, right? Like, see, look, all the fat drips down in this little tray. And you're like, have you ever grilled a burger? It's like all the fat drips through the holes. It drips through the cracks. Like, that's how grilling works. It's you didn't invent like diet grilling, dude. It's just it's a he tilted, might as well have that dude made a killing maker. off of it. <laughs> it's just a tilted panini maker. Dude, my my mom went pretty hard on the George Foreman grill for a while, and it was like every other night was like marinated chicken breasts on the George Foreman, and I hated it. I hated it so much. Hated it. That was like my <laughs> least favorite. It was like that or when my dad would, you know, do you ever, like, your parents ever make like pork tenderloin on the grill? Yeah. It's like a big, it's like a, a, a pig log. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> and everybody's scared that it's pork tartare so they just they just grill the crap out of it it basically pork chops were dude pork chops were like everyone would be like if it's undercooked at all you're gonna die so they just like grill the fucking shit out of it like why do we eat this i'd rather have chicken every single night forever instead of these like weird dried out fucking pork chops dipped in applesauce yeah yeah it's like uh uh by the time it's done cooking, like to the extent that people are comfortable eating it, it's like mummified pig shanks. Yeah. <laughs> all the moisture out of it as you chew it, it, it sucks all the moisture out of your mouth. It's like food that dehydrates you. Yeah. It's like just add water. You have to like add water to it in order to like actually eat it. Now, I will say uh, I have since learned how to make pork chops the right way. I make a mean pork chop. Yeah, I they're pretty I good when too. you don't overdo it. Yeah, you got to brine them. Brine's where it's at. Never brined a pork chop. I actually have not cooked a pork chop in at least 10 years. When you come visit, I will cook you a steak and a pork chop. Those are the two things that I do very well. <laughs> we should start a, a food-themed podcast. I think that's what we should. That's our backup. We need like a, I don't know, bi-monthly, like just 20 minutes of just what we cooked and how we did it. Yeah. Just me vigorously cleaning dishes and being angry. Yeah. Is that how you're cooking? I mean, yeah, yeah I feel like, like, Oh, this took three hours and it took 10 minutes to eat. Now I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of work goes, it's worse. Like dude, having like having kids, having four kids in the house and like trying to, I just remember like enjoying making dinner. It's like a labor of love where you're like, get home, take some time on this eat whatever the fuck you want, make whatever you want. And now you're like, if I make this, the kids are going to hate it. It's going to end up on the floor. If I walk away from the table, my dog's going to be an asshole and try to jump up and eat it. It's like, it's just a constant anxiety inducing event now. Uh, And it used to be something I enjoyed. So, you know, that's why, you know, you resort to uh, dino nuggets sometimes. Dino nuggets. Yeah. (laughs) I could, I could mess with some dino nuggets. Yeah, I've definitely oh. fucked up some dino nuggets at like, you know, Friday night at midnight. I'm up. Everyone's asleep. I'm not quite ready. You fall asleep with like a dino nugget hanging out of your mouth. Watch it. Eat until my body slips into like, uh, you know, uh, a coma. Yeah, I, that's how it works for me, because I'm trying to like 
soak in the like every last drop of alone time after everyone's <laughs> asleep in my house. <laughs> I'm going to gorge myself into a stasis. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I have a question for you. Yeah. Did you ever have a bully? Yep. Uh, what grade was it? I hadn't thought about this in a long time. It was first grade. It, probably first grade because I was taking the bus. Yeah. Um, I would... I don't remember. I don't remember his name. I only saw him on the bus. I went to a private Christian school through second grade. And this kid, the school went up to like maybe sixth grade, but the kid seemed like he was like 23 for sure. When you're like, when you're in first grade, like a sixth grader looks like they're old as shit, right? Yeah. And he would harass my brother and I on the bus all the time. I don't even, I don't know why I, I, we never saw him. I maybe he just saw weakness in me. Smelled fear. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. And uh, he would fuck with us all the time, and I would complain to my parents about it. And one of the days, my dad just got really sick of it, and he walked onto the bus with us, and he fucking flipped out on the kid. Told him to like stop <laughs> fucking with his kids, basically. And uh, it was bad. I mean, my dad got a call from the school and was like, "You're not allowed to ever go on the buses." you can't do that. And they were school was pretty upset. And he's like, well, maybe that kid needs to learn to keep his mouth shut. It's like, maybe, maybe keep order in the bus. And I don't need to do that. So he did it. I never had a problem again after that. I stand by my dad's decision to do that. And I don't think that would fly as well today. It's possible that that wouldn't go over so well, but like if my kids were getting like, so Lainey is, um, she's in kindergarten. She talks about this girl that, uh, isn't very nice. And then she'll like push kids and stuff like that. And I already want to go just knock that kid over. And <laughs> it's like, it's a kindergartner. And I'd be like, I'll just put my finger on that kid's forehead and just push him to the ground. And I don't think I'd feel just, a lot of remorse over it. I'd be like, how do you like it? How the fuck do you like it? Just do a Bill Burr and just pour a little water on him. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to, dude, you want to like stand up for your kids and stuff. And uh, so I get it, get it especially now, but that wasn't one of those moments where I was embarrassed. I wasn't ever like, I can't believe my dad did that. I was always like, fuck yeah, dad. You know, this kid's not messing with me on the bus anymore. And it worked out great. And my dad didn't get arrested. So it was like a win-win really. But uh, what about you? What's your, uh, I, you must have a bully story. Yeah, mine's like same timeline. Like I was in first, second grade, somewhere in there. It was on the bus. The buses were, I mean, buses were like Thunderdome. Yeah, they were. You know? <laughs> it's just Remember, anarchy. Like, we had this like neighborhood we would go through that had a speed bump. It was like, a, I don't know. I I don't know what the neighborhood was. It was just like they had all those like speed bumps through the entire way and like Everyone would sit in the back because for some reason, when the back axle of the bus went over the speed bump, it would like launch you up in the air and you would try to like hit your head on the ceiling and shit. And everyone overdid it, of course. And looking back on it, the bus driver was probably like, I, how did I get here? I hate my job. I hate these kids. This is terrible. Bus have like those brown, like Naga hide plastic seats in them with, and then they'd get a hole in them and they'd put duct tape over it. Oh yeah. Is there any other kind of bus seat? I don't think so. I think that's it. But yeah, I had a kid that, uh, so this was in Georgia. This was when I lived in outside of like Dallas, Douglasville, Georgia. And 
my bully was this kid named David Ray. And sounds like a piece of shit. He was. He was just like this white trash, horrible. He probably lived in a horrible home. Like I remember at one point they because he would get on. He got off the bus after me. So like I always got off at our place and then further down the line, he would he would get off. My parents have built a house out kind of in the boonies. So it's like rural Georgia. There's like some pretty sketchy, scary looking single wides that have been there for 30 years and stuff. And then my parents had just built this, you know, <laughs> a, a modest, normal house. But it's a new house amidst some of these other ones, right? It screamed, rob us. We're doing well. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> these people eat meat more than once a week, you know? <laughs> they definitely have steak on rotation. <laughs> they never have to forage. <laughs> That's so, uh, David was like, he would, he would always just bother me on the bus. He was maybe two years older than me. And I remember at one point they reversed the bus route like halfway through the year. And so like he was getting off the bus before me. So I got to like see his house, if you want to call it that. And I mean, it was scary, scary redneck. Like it was deliverance level of a dwelling. <laughs> so, you know, you have to put it all like I try to take that into account, but I still hate his guts, you know? Yeah. And. I remember like he would he would just like like I remember him like choking me in the bus seat at one point. Um, Damn, that's excessive. Yeah, he was just an unruly little redneck douchebag. And he's probably dead now. Yeah. Strung out on pills or (laughs) or soon to be dead. Who knows? He's a real Henry Bowers type character. But (laughs) I want everybody wants to know what happened to their school bully like where are they at now most of them are probably just fine we're like yeah i was a piece of kid that's probably how most of them are what was that movie where like uh it was kids like arguing back and forth and the one kid's like you better leave me alone and kids like yeah what are you gonna do about it and one of the other kids chimes in and he's like his dad's gonna fire your dad <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what movie that i don't remember either but yeah that was uh did you ever have a point where you were a bully you think no way, dude. I was a coward. I was constantly the kid who just ate shit. I couldn't stand up to anyone for anything. Even the people that I was friends with when I was in first grade, second grade were like not nice to me. I don't know why I was even friends with them. I think I maybe shared that story at one point, but I like the kid that I was like, this is my best friend was like a total asshole to me all the time. And at one point he just like crossed the line and I never saw him again. And I just couldn't stand up to people. I took people's shit. I'm still kind of like that to be. I don't know. <laughs> I probably am. I don't think I've changed a lot. I think most people would be like, hey, you're a bitch. And I'd be like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do anything. I really like stand up for myself. I feel like if somebody pushed the right button on you, though, you would you'd go off in a big way. I don't know. So you got to. I don't know. We'll have to try it. You have to like uh, stage something. You. Get a uh, do some like Borat, Sasha Baron Cohen type stuff and uh, <laughs> see what happens if you push me in a weird way. I'd probably it's like you're gonna it would start as a joke. Like, let's see what happens if we push him. I bet he'll stand up for himself and I'm going to just end up with like murder in the second degree charges. 
It's like, I didn't realize I had that in me. You go like like full bore, turn it up to 11 and just yeah. like jab him in the throat with a pen. And then just stand there afterwards like, haha. So I don't know. I don't know where that came from, guys. <laughs> Blood makes me horny now. <laughs> <laughs> I was oh, thinking boy. about it and I don't know if I ever like I, I don't know if I ever had a, a like a, a stint as a bully, but I do remember there was one kid that got on my nerves a lot at at my school. And I think I was excessively mean to this kid. Yeah. Looking back on it, you know, like I've talked about it, but our you should school try to find him like, and apologize. Well, I could find him now. I mean, I, I could I could reasonably like contact him now, but I uh, I later on, you know, I he, we were friends and got along just fine. But uh, th- one of the weird things about that school is like you've got you know kindergarten through seniors in the same room that is so weird dude it's so crazy to me that that was your lived experience for that many years yeah and it's a small school i mean there was like at at some points it was like 70 80 students but then towards you know the last four years that i was there it was more like 60 students and then like 45 before I left. And then it got even smaller after I left before it finally like withered and died. Yeah. You have but, to close the doors at that. Yeah. So you go on breaks, you know, they give you breaks, like they give you a morning and an afternoon break and then a lunch break where you, you had recess basketball. up to 12th grade. Oh yeah. Yeah. Dodgeball was like, that was, that was the highlight of the week. But <laughs> that gym class or you actually had legit recess still. No, we had reason. I mean, whatever you want to call it, like we had times when we weren't working. I don't think that's how real school works. <laughs> you don't have like a period of time to eat lunch or just I to mean, like. That's called lunch, dude. That's not called recess. <laughs> well, whatever. We had recess. And uh, this, uh, there was it's no so point where you could get away from like the younger kids. And like when you're a sophomore, you don't want to hang out with fourth graders, but <laughs> you have to because yeah, that's all there school. is to do. There's <laughs> only a few of you. Anytime you get creative, like somebody finds a way to like uh, find fault with like the game that you thought up or the activity that you just that you guys decided to do. It was like you can shoot basketballs or you can uh, walk around outside the school. That's it. So like this group of younger kids just followed us all the time, just always like right in the middle. And they did that thing where like, like one of my friends uh, named James, he's like one of the most like off the cuff, funny people I've ever been around. And everybody thought so. James would say something that was hilarious. And then they would just repeat it, like just parrot it over and over and over again until you were about to like freak out. And I remember like we were pretty mean to those kids at some point, but they just never left. They always were just always like right there, you know? <laughs> oh my God. But, you having recess with second graders as, as a sophomore is so funny to me. Oh yeah. Dude, playing varsity basketball with fifth graders on the team, <laughs> starting on the team. Did you only play other Christian schools? Yeah. We couldn't okay. go play the local high school. <laughs> there was one school that we played that was like high, local high school 
level of of enrollment. Like they had several hundred kids. They Lansing Baptist School. Hard, huh? They beat us by a hundred points one time. <laughs> humiliating it was terrible (laughs) i wonder why i never took sports seriously (laughs) yeah no shit 100 points in basketball how many did you guys score i think like 18 (laughs) it was like it was literally like 120 something to 18 (laughs) you know who had the worst time out of all that like it sucked for you guys playing but imagine how awful your parents felt like how embarrassed they were sitting there watching that and and trying to be like supportive yeah someone passes casey the ball and you're like get your finger jammed and you just drop it Oh you're God. behind by 80 points your dad's trying to be optimistic like set a good solid pick yeah you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man go back and be a fly on the wall for your high school career uh nobody would it, it wasn't interesting i would i, would, I guarantee it, it wasn't it was. funny or interesting at all uh, i don't know i'm laughing pretty hard right now anyway uh okay we've been we gotta introduce our guest here um our guest is Andre Jacobs. This is a uh, we're kind of going to new territory with this one because this person has nothing to do with Christianity at all. No religious upbringing. We don't really discuss faith. Uh, he just had a wild story, and I, you know, we got connected through social media. Um, Andre Jacobs spent twenty three years in prison after being incarcerated at 15 for nonviolent crimes. And he gets into the kind of the story of why I ended up turning into 23 years. It's incredibly unreasonable, but you know, th- he, he went into prison, not knowing how to read or write. And while he was there, he saw a lot of bullshit that he wanted to be able to push back against. So like he ends up learning to read and write. He ends up getting his paralegal degree. He ends up suing the the state and the, the penitentiary like multiple times he ends up, you know, in a courtroom at least 20 times. And, you know, after getting his paralegal degree defends himself, uh, acts in his own defense. And he just has this incredible story of like one, it's just the injustice of our prison system. Uh, and you'll hear a good bit about what he has to say about that. And, and just, it, I don't know. It's just one of those powerful stories where, and, and you, and you, you know that like not everyone's story can or does end up like that, but there's something special about this guy where he wasn't a, he just wasn't going to take the shit that was put on him. And he kind of made a name for himself there. And also made himself a target. You know, yep. he spent the vast majority of that 23 years in solitary confinement. Yeah. It's just un, unreal. Uh, I mean, that's basically uh, the fact that we still allow solitary confinement as a um, form of punishment. It's weird. Like the prisons have like their own, like it's like a rogue system, right? Like kind of make up their own rules. Uh, There's not a lot of recourse if you are a victim of the injustice on the inside. Because people, you know, no one cares Uh, on the outside. They're like, yeah, criminals are in jail. Like it's, it's one of those things like you'll hear people get annoyed, especially growing up in evangelicalism, right? Like it's constantly like when you talk about prison, if someone wants to talk about prison reform and making the experience not so bad that 
well, they're criminals. Maybe they shouldn't have committed those crimes. And then they joke on like European prisons where they're not as, uh, not as hard on people and stuff like that. And so uh, being a person on the inside in this country is you just don't have a lot of options available to you. Uh, they're not made known. That's for goddamn sure that you're, you're, they're not going to just give you a form to fill out, to file a grievance with the state or whatever. So, you know, he, I mean, this is all stuff that he had to figure out on his own and work on, on his own. And uh, he just accomplished a lot, did a lot. And he only got out of prison a year ago. And his story is just absolutely unbelievable. And it was so exciting to talk to him. And it sounds like he's got some big stuff, you know, coming our way at some point. Yeah. So enjoy our conversation with Andre Jacobs. Hey, everyone. We're back with our guest, Andre Jacobs. Uh, And Andre, I'm super pumped to talk to you. One, you should give yourself a big pat on the back because you are our first guest who uh, is on for absolutely nothing to do with religious affiliation. So (laughs) you just had an interesting story and I couldn't wait to talk to you. So there you go. You're you're, uh, starting a new trend for us, man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, broaden broaden the scope a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we, before we even dig into your story, uh, just hear from you a quick, just like the quick snapshot of of who Andre Jacobs is, because there's a lot of years of your life that there is to get into. But um, just kind of give us a, the quick short version, and then we'll kind of jump into where it all started with you. Yeah, well, the short version is that um, I come from a poverty-stricken community in Harrisburg. I got caught up in the system at a very young age. Uh, from that stamp, you know, from that position, I ended up, you know, in, into crime life also at a very young age, went to prison when I was, went to adult prison when I was 15 years old, um, with a three to 10 year sentence, got additional time while I was in prison and ended up doing 23 years in prison. Oh my God. Um, when I entered prison, I couldn't read or write. Um, I started learning how to read and write when I was like 16. I completed, you know, I finished all my schooling by the time I was 19, got my GED, um, also got a paralegal's degree, um, and became really, really good at filing lawsuits. Wow. Yeah. Man, how how do you go? So what, what was the motivator for you? Because there's obviously a lot that happens in prison, uh, and there's a lot that can, you know, make it difficult to to take the path that you took, right? There's a lot of obstacles in your way. Um, what was it that motivated you at that point um, to to take things in that direction? Because that's super impressive, man. Yeah. So that's funny. Um, I, I always tell people that women are like the biggest motivators in the world. Um, <laughs> so I used to I used to write a lot of letters when I first when I first went to prison, and I always knew what I wanted to say. But I could not, I could not, you know, write or spell. So one of the, you know, one of the main things that motivated me was, um, you know, wanting to write, you know, proper letters that, you know, with the with the words spelled correctly and things of that nature. That's actually the very, you know, basic motivating factor that I wanted to write good letters in in a way that expressed what I was really thinking and what I was really feeling. And I was already writing poetry at that time. So just to try to communicate, you know, what I was going through, you know, effectively, 
I wanted to learn, you know, learn words and learn expression and communication and things of that nature. So that's really where it started. Huh. What was, what did schooling look like? Like, how did that, how, I mean, obviously a lot of that's self-taught. I mean, how did you even, how do you get access to that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't step one foot in any classroom, really. It was really just like, you know, just me and myself, me drawing on the knowledge around me, you know, just constantly like in books. I had a dictionary and um, for a long period of time, I had the same book that I would use to can like to find new words and learn new words. And then anything that I couldn't pronounce, I would just ask somebody like, hey, how, you know, how do you pronounce this word? And I just kept, you know, I just kept doing it. like everywhere I went, I would draw on other people's knowledge and get, you know, new words and new pronunciations and things like that. And that was how I built my vocabulary. It was the, so were the people around you in, in prison, I mean, were they supportive of that? Is everybody kind of like, because I got to imagine that there, it's a mix of people, but there's got to be a community of people that are like, I, I gotta, I gotta work towards something while I'm here to not go crazy. I mean, were they, were they pushing you forward and helping with that stuff? Yeah, I mean, you you just got to find them. Like in prison, there are groups of people, <clears throat> excuse me, there are groups of people for everything, basically. You just got to find a group, you know? Like you're not going to find those type of supportive individuals um, standing at the rap corner, you know, where in the corner where everybody raps and shares songs and stuff like that. You're going, you know, in many cases, you're going to find those individuals in the law library or the general library or something like that. They're, you know, generally doing something, you know, along those lines. Now, in my case, I was in solitary confinement. So I used to just listen, see who went to the law library, see who was, you know, serious about um, change. So how did you get in? Okay. How did you get into solitary? Because I know that's part of your story. And I know you spent a long, a long time in there. So I want to build to that. So you're, you're, so you're 15 when you go, uh, go to prison. And how long was it before they, before any, like what, what led to you being put into a solitary situation as opposed to? Well, the first time I went to solitary, you can get, you can go to solitary for pretty much anything. Is that like a oh. standard form of punishment for it, like, it really is. I mean, whenever they feel like it? Yeah. I mean, it really is. And it shouldn't be. That's why, you know, you got so many advocates um, opposing the use of it and, you know, requesting a you know, a limited use of it. Because it's, you know, it's used for anything. Like I've got solitary confinement time for having two spoons when I should have one spoon. What? You know, so like you can get put in the solitary for anything. But um, because in many cases, like what they do is they'll um, add more charges to a misconduct to make it more than what it really what it really is. So in a scenario where I have two spoons instead of one, the actual charge is really um, unauthorized item. If you're somewhere where you're only supposed to have one spoon, but they'll put on the misconduct contraband, which is more like if you get caught with a knife or some drugs or something like that, but they'll label that same spoon that they issued you contraband just to beef your charges up on the misconduct. So you would get more time in solitary confinement. But what, what's the motivation for that? Uh, is it, I mean, was, is there just people who get targeted for really no particular reason? Oh, and yeah, I mean, control, it, fear. It, it couldn't, that, is that you got, you hit it, you hit it right on the head. It's just control. It's just, you know, a tool that they use to keep people in line and 
you know, those stories, you know, those stories circulate. Hey, here's the guy, you know, that particular guard right there. He will write you up for everything. Such and such got six months in a hole. Such and such got 90 days in a hole, so forth and so on. I mean, you know, in my personal opinion, it's, it's used more like um, the whip was used in, in chattel slavery. You know, like, you know, that's 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 the same, you know, the same thing with the misconduct. Um, it's like the threat that always looms over your head. And exactly. if they want you in there, they can find a reason to put you in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, it's funny you said that they 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 had a charge um, called reckless eyeballing, reckless eyeballing. So, like, if you just looked at, you know, a, a guard, you know, the wrong way, you would get hit with reckless eyeballing and put in solitary confinement. And for and in, for a certain set of time, does each charge warrant a certain amount of time in well, solitary? Yeah, I mean, um, I think the least. I'm actually, I don't think the least amount of time you could get was 15 days, but um, the lowest that was generally used was 15 days. If oh you, my God. In other words, like if you got 15 days, people were you know you were happy that you got 15 days. Most people get between 30 and 60 days, and then 90 days if it's a fight or Maybe you get caught with a knife or something along, you know, something like that. Um, That's while wild. you're in solitary confinement, you could get additional misconducts. For example, like I said, you got an extra towel or you got an extra spoon or, you know, you, you get in an argument with a guard. He's going to write on the misconduct that you threatened his life, you know, so. And these okay, are all- so maybe can you explain like what solitary looks like? Because my what comes to mind for me is like, Shawshank. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like a hole with a cover on it, you know? Yeah. Fish you out uh, in a few it's, months. It's it's um it's not it's not that bad. Um I actually uh if I would have known y'all was gonna ask that question, I would have I would have showed you these these pictures that I have of a cell that I actually lived in. But basically they're all pretty much the same. Some of them are just smaller. Um and you got a toilet, a sink that's normally connected, is made out of tin, a bunk, a table, and a stool connected to the table. That's your cell. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, everywhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, some of them are different in terms of the back window, how the door is. Some of them have bars. Some of them have solid doors. Some of them have small windows. Some of them, some of them might have one window in the middle. Some might have two windows. but um, it's pretty much a six by nine cell. Um, and a doctor who I actually interviewed on my podcast um, described it as being the size of a, a common parking space in a parking lot. OK. And they just so then so normally uh, it sounds like you would have a cellmate. And but with solitary is how, how does it function differently? Because I don't even I guess what's the daily structure like, right, if you're in, in a regular situation versus solitary is there a certain well, amount of time out is there well, how does yeah. that look for you? i mean it is just in terms of uh, i mean everything you know the list the list goes on and on as to the the difference but um you know in population and what they call gp general population um you go you go to the child hall to eat you go out to recreation you know where there's a you know a big yard basketball court um you know, a track, you know, uh, weights and things of that nature. Um, 
you go to you go to school, you go to the chapel, um, you walk the medical yourself. Um, pretty much anything that you would do, you would go to your, go yourself. Get a pass if some some things you don't need a pass. The barber shop, you know, go to the barber shop. Commissary, same thing. Um, you go to you go to recreation two to three times, two to three times a day for several hour, several hours. Oh, so it's kind of lax. It's not like the typical, not, I don't want to say lax because it's obviously prison, but I feel like the general mindset that people have is like, you get like an hour a day and it's Hold on, now I was talking about general population. Yeah, yeah. In solitary confinement, you get an hour a day. Oh, so that's what you get, just in that. So you get an hour. And yeah, so you, I was you, just trying to show you the difference. Yeah. You had asked like, what is the difference that- that's the difference. And population is all of those things in solitary confinement. You don't go to child. You eat in your cell. You don't go to chapel. The chaplain comes to your cell door and talks to you in front of everybody. You don't go to medical. They come to your door and talk to you at your door. Um, you don't go anywhere except out the recreation for one hour and um, to a room that they put some books in and call a, and call a library. So basically, it's it's social isolation, and your only contact with other people is just a few little meetings with chaplain or whoever else you know mm-hmm. that you would that you would run into during the day, but all in your cell. Like you're basically in your cell twenty two hours a day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. That's so. Wild. Now, now, not every prison are you in a cell by yourself. Sometimes you got cellies too. And did you, you ever have in there together that mm-hmm. same that same way that that seems like that might be better or it might be worse depending on who you got put in there with it, exactly and it depends on the type of person that you are i mean like uh, literally they're talking like right now of a cellmate that got killed um up at somerset sci somerset in pennsylvania um and i mean it, it, you know See some of the some of the unseen things that come into play with solitary confinement in terms of like the cellmates and things like that is um, that you might be doing a life sentence and your cellmate might be doing two years. He might not want to be in a cell with this individual. It might not be anything like you know um, necessarily that he fears for his life necessarily, but you know this guy who has a life sentence or nothing to lose might. Just wake up one day and, you know, feel like, um, you know, he's willing to risk it all. Yeah, that's interesting. That's got to change things a lot. If you if you know there's no chance of ever getting out, that's got to change the way you live when you're on when you're in prison. huh? Um, well, I mean, um, one of the things that the system uses to keep that under control is, you know, a lot of pacifiers like television. You can you can have your own TV. There's a lot of, um, you know, lifer programs where individuals that serve in life sentences can um, be presidents and vice presidents on particular boards and, you know, uh, certain educational programs. They could be um, tutors, you know. So, I mean, a lot of those individuals, um, actually, the guy who helped me learn how to read and write was a lifer. And he was one of the kindest men I ever met in my life, like even to this day. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, it sounds like there are plenty of people who once they're on the inside kind of find meaning in helping right, other right, people right, right, right. Kind yeah, of turn so, around. Yeah. Right. So not all of them just give up. Not all of them just, you know, um, 
you know, lived our lives like there's no hope or there's no future. Not all of them live that way. Some of them do, um, yep. but not all of them do. So what I feel like the, the scariest thing about the solitary is just thinking about how how do you keep your mind occupied? Like, how do you pass time? I mean, when you're spending months in there at a time, like, how do you bear that? And what what sort of like, uh, I guess, like mental and behavioral devices do you use to keep your sanity during that time period? Um, for me, for me, it was um, writing. I mean, like if you saw the amount of writing that I did over the years, like you just you just wouldn't believe it. Um, so I did a lot of writing. I wrote seven books. I got five of them published. But Jeez. you know, aside from that, um, that's pretty you know, impressive, man. <laughs> yeah, I sue. I sued people. You know, I I, I filed a lot of complaints. Um, they must have hated you then. Yeah, they they really did. And I was good at it, so that you know that just made it worse. So I so, want to get into those details. Oh, go ahead, Casey. You ask your question, and then we'll. Yeah, same same thing. I mean, so you you've mentioned a couple times that that you filed a lot of lawsuits. Does lawsuit or lawsuits like does that start to feel like your only recourse when you're in that situation? Is just to yeah. like try it, to pursue a, it through litigation. Is 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 yes. The answer is yes. It is not as desirable as people think. Um, people think that people are just looking to file a lawsuit. I wasn't, you know, for, for one, because like, um, it is, there's a whole lot of, uh, unwanted attention, you know, that, that, you know, that you're under extra scrutiny that you, that you come under as a result of, um, basically taking the system on, you know, whether it be, you know, yeah. physical, physical abuse, you know, mental abuse, male tampering, Constant security searches, you know, uh, you know, uh, destroying your cell. I mean, nobody wants to do time like that. But yeah. it's like you said, like, it, you know, it comes to a point where you I, you like you truly feel like you're being violated. Like, I really felt like I was being violated. If people were in the same situations that I was in, I think the average human being would feel like they were being violated, like. Like, this is wrong. Like, uh, no human being is supposed to be treated this way. What can I do about it? And then, you know, it, it's so bureaucratic that, you know, you go to these people like, hey, you know, what can we? Oh, yeah, I'll talk to you. I'll look into it. I'll see what's going on. And and then it just bounced from one. Yeah, well, why don't you talk to such and such? Or why don't you talk to such and such? And it goes on and on and on. And you never get no result. So um, and the grievance system doesn't work by their own admission. At least in Pennsylvania, 98% of all grievances throughout the state filed by prisoners are denied. Only 2% get granted. And in my opinion, even that 2% that get granted is not um, for issues involving credibility. Anytime there's a question between the credibility of a prisoner and a guard, the guard wins. So the grievance system is basically just pageantry that's meant to keep you, keep you pacified. Like, it, oh, we'll look into it. You know, just give us some time and we'll look into it. And then they just keep you chasing your tail and, and nothing ever happens. Yeah. And I, and, 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 and I just want to focus like mostly on like there, there are situations where um, you file a grievance about your commissary. 
um, you were supposed to get 10 soups and they only gave you two and you got the proof. You know, like they'll grant a grievance like that and say, hey, yeah, you were right. You know, whatever the case may be. But if you file okay. a grievance and say, uh, you know, this guard touched me the wrong way during a pat search or, you know, this guard called me the N-word or anything like that, that in many cases the guard is going to deny, then they're going to rule in favor of the guard. You know, anytime it's a credibility issue. So have you seen, I mean, what sorts of things could actually get a guard in trouble in from that perspective? I mean, have you ever really gotten to see many situations where somebody, somebody filed a grievance against a guard and it was taken seriously and that guy got punitive yeah, I action? Have. I have, yeah. I have. Um, unfortunately, I've seen limited action. It's always the bare minimum. So I've seen situations where um, guards had beaten individuals and it was caught on camera or portions of it might have been caught on camera or one of the guards might have made a comment that contradicted something that the other guard might have said. So, you know, like where it's blatant, like they're kind of forced into a situation where they got to do something. So in those situations, it's still the bare minimum. Like prime example, in my situation, there was a guard who went online. Okay, so I had a I had a very popular case that was reported like you know internationally basically, and one of the guards. So I had like a, there was a lot of people on social media and stuff like that commenting about my case, advocating in my behalf, and things of that nature. So one of the prison guards went on um, social media and said, um, you know, y'all talk about this guy like you know like he's a saint. Um, F that N and F you too. Okay. Uh, wow. He was, he was currently, he actually worked on my block. He worked on the block that I was housed at. And, you know, my, my supporters traced this, traced it to his phone and his email and sent me all the documentation and all that. I actually won the grievance. They admitted, they said, yeah, we agreed that, you know, he did do this. But we don't feel that it warrants him being fired. But my thing is, you know, like here you are, you're a white prison guard working in a prison that's predominantly people of color. And you're lashing out in, in this extremely unprofessional way on social media and calling and making racial slurs. Why do you want to work in this prison anyway? Why would you as an administrator want this person working there? Yeah. Right. It's crazy. I mean, it's a clear indication of like, I mean, obviously his motivation is uh, you might assume white supremacy at that point. So probably not the kind of guy that you should have working there. Um, probably just a dumb hick. Yeah, And mm -hmm. the fact that he gets to, again, as you've pointed out, shows the flaws of that system. I mean, it's, you know, as you it's calling back to your comment on the control and comparing it to, a whip uh it's like it's clearly a racist system if they're fine with just that and they get they give the little slap on the wrist just mm -hmm. to do the bare minimum mm -hmm. so i mean obviously there's like camaraderie it's it's there's similar it's probably a similar situation to what you see play out with police all the time where there's like this you know the whole blue line thing where Guards don't contradict other guards. Like mm -hmm. you stand up for that guy, regardless of what happened. What's, what do you think? I mean, it, 
What do you think is like at the heart of that? Because I mean, I feel like we've learned a lot over the past couple of years about the role that like the police union plays in keeping these, you know, these officers that continually do terrible things like plugged into the system and and avoiding consequences i mean is that a similar situation with prison guards no i mean it's almost identical i mean to a point where like so i i was like real um you know for many years and i did 23 years so i watched a lot of news i read a lot of books and stuff like that it got to a point where i stopped reading the newspapers and i stopped watching the news so but anytime certain issues would come up, I would still have, you know, a political stance or just, you know, something concerning, you know, the topic. You know, this happened, you know, what do you think about it? This is what I think about, it, you know. So when I had actually got out of prison um, and people would, you know, ask my opinion about certain, you know, current events and stuff like that. And I would just tell them, like, so what's going to happen is this, 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 this and that, because it's. It's like you said, it's almost it's almost identical. You know, it's the same thing is, you know, don't contradict each other. There's this camaraderie. There's this. And to me, it's just like it's it's it's, it's terrible because like one of the things that me and one of my friends talk about, he went to prison when he was 15, too. He did 15 years is that these officers really had an opportunity to be our mentors and to be a better example, because we're literally being raised in prison. We went to prison as juveniles. Yeah, right. Wow. And I was confined in a prison that was mostly uh, when I went to state prison, they got a a a, um, a section where is ju uh, juvenile adult offenders or something like that they call it. So, I mean, instead of them trying to show us a new way, this is what we come from. We you know, we come from the code of silence. You know, uh, don't call the police. Don't you see what I'm saying? Like all that different. That's that's street stuff. That's street lane. That's gangster stuff. So how is it that, you know, you know, y'all saying that y'all law by citizens and y'all, you know, um, you know, showing a different way. But y'all doing the same. Y'all doing the same stuff that we was doing in, in the crime life. Y'all think the same way, even on a higher scale. And it's like you said, the same way the unions out there. Actually, I think. One of those unions that support the police also support the prison guards. I think it's like um, police, municipalities and corrections or something like that all wrapped in one. There's a union that actually represents all of them. So they're familiar, you know, with that, you know, that type of scenario, whether it's police or, you know, correction officers, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, um, you know, on, on a, you know, on a broader scale. I just feel like the system is willing to do anything that justifies or furthers the whole mass incarceration platform in, in existence. The same way that they were able and willing to justify chattel slavery by, you know, by any and all means necessary. Yeah, yeah. No, whether it makes sense or not, whether it's, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a moral stance to take, you know, like it was always, you know, even in them times. And now you hear a lot of the same arguments, the same uh, moral appeal and, and, and spiritual appeal and so forth and so on um, that we saw then we see now. But, you know, we're talking about a system, a machine, something that is in place for the benefit of, you know, the, the wealthy and the powerful and, you know, to the detriment of the weak and the poor.
Yeah, uh, 100%, man. So how I want to hear a little bit more about the progression of your life while you were in prison, because I mean, 23 years is a long time to spend somewhere like I can't imagine what it was like to, you know, reacclimate to society after that. Um, but, but I guess even before we get to that, you said you originally went in for three, was it three to five years or three, something like, what was it? To 10. Three to 10. Um, yeah. So how, how did they continue to slap? Cause it's, I mean, one of the things I'm hearing you say is talking about like the, you know, they'll slap you with stuff and throw you in solitary. So there's kind of like this like system inside where there's penalties and punitive punishment for whatever actions they deem punishable. Uh, but then there's obviously something that escalates past that, which is where they're able to go to the judicial system and, and slap more time on you. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, how, what, I guess, what was that all like? How did, how did they continue to just add more time to your sentence and, and well, keep you locked um, up longer? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is I, I didn't answer your earlier question. How did I end up in solitary confinement? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, 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 um, the very first time I went to solitary confinement was for a fight. Okay. I was fighting this older gentleman, um, because he tried to take something off my food tray. So that was the first time I went to, that was the first time I went to solitary confinement. Um, but now that is it, it, when, when it escalates from misconduct to outside charges is, um, sometimes the severity of the incident, um, or personal vendetta. They had a mm-hmm. personal vendetta against me. So anything that could potentially turn into a crime, you know, an outside crime or outside charge, they they made it. A, they made it a charge. Prime example. One time, um, well, they actually they they planted. I don't know where they got it. I, I, I use the word planted, but I don't know where they got the knife from. They had a knife. Um, they recovered a knife from somewhere. Um, and they, they charge me with it, but people get caught with knives all the time. I mean, it's, you know, it's an element of prison. Um, sure. I mean, and, and shank, shank is loosely anything with a, with a point to it. So this pen right here, if it's sharpened down, it's a shank, you know, anything that you can poke somebody with, you know, becomes a shank. Um, so, um, you know, they charged me in that case, but the thing is like, my cell, my cell had been searched, um, and I was clear. They then went and searched some other cells, came back, searched my cell again, and then came out and said, "Look what we found." I ended up winning the case. You know, they attempted. You know, they criminally charged me. I refused to take a deal. I said, "Listen, I want you know, you charged me. I want the jury to hear this story that you're telling. I'm not, you know, I'm not agreeing to anything." And then, you know, they ended up withdrawing the charges. But then some of the other cases that they were successful on were um, altercations that I got in with prison guards. In many cases, like three of them against me in a cell, them with weapons, me with nothing. You know, one occasion was I was handcuffed and shackled. They initiated an altercation. You know, um, they lied about they lied about um, punching me multiple times. It came out, you know, it came out later, but, um, you know, you can't always get, you can't always get a good jury. Um, yeah, I was fortunate, you know, I was fortunate enough and, and some of those cases to have, you know, a good jury and a fair trial and the juries, you know, acquitted me of all charges multiple times. 
So, so you were present at the trials and sitting in the courtroom with the jury when during those those trials. Yes. Okay. So, you walk into the court. You look over at the jury. What What does the jury look like when you're like, oh God, <laughs> like, like what's the jury that you don't want to see when you walk in? <laughs> that's a hard question, man. Because like, um, that's that's a hard question. Um, because one of the things I learned is that, um, you know, from doing prison time, the one thing I learned is that the people you expect to be there won't be there. And the people you don't expect to be there will be there. So I might want to look over there and see a bunch of black people, but that don't mean that I'm going to get a fair trial. You know, So it just never, it just always felt like. It could go any which way with like the yeah, first time really, you're seeing that jury. I really felt like that. I think I'm going to tell you when I, um, the one time where I felt like I was doomed from the beginning was when I went to trial in the feds, the way that the, the way that the jury was selected, the way that, you know, the, that whole process was so different and so restricted that you know, they basically gave you the jury. Like you didn't, you didn't really get to pick a jury versus like, you know, in state court where they actually bring each individual in front of you and you get to ask some questions, you get to look at what, whatever they submitted, you know, for their um, jury qualifications and so forth and so on. Um, you know, that other, that other process, that was, that was one time where I felt like I don't know any of these people, any of these people on this jury. I don't know them. I don't know anything about them. Versus the other process where I actually sat with him and my lawyer asked him questions. I told him, yo, ask, ask her this, ask him this. You see what I'm saying? Um, so that was the one time. But other than that, like I always felt like it could go either way, no matter what the jury physically looked like. Wow. What you were part like, of picking your own jury in some situations. That must have felt that must have been a lot of pressure, like trying to decide who the right fits are for that. I mean, there's only so much you can tell in a short conversation and short questionnaire. That must've been a yeah, wild um, experience. I don't know, man. I think, um, yeah, it, it was, it was. Um, but one of the things that you develop and at least for me now, one of the things that you might not know that, that I may not have made clear is that until I was about 21, 22, I, I was like a very, very quiet person. You could not get me into a conversation. Um, so, but I was very, you know, observative. Like I used to watch everything and listen to everything and remember everything. So, like, even to this day, like I tell people conversations that we had in 1996, <laughs> you know, and they like, like, you remember that. Like, yeah, I remember like what you said to me, like we were standing on this street and that street, or we was sitting here and, and you said this, or we was listening to this song and you said, yeah, what you see what I'm saying? Like it was stuff like that because I was always like trying to understand the world around me and like what was going on. So one of the things that you develop in prison is just like a sense of people, you know, you could feel people out. You can sense people, you could, you know, eye contact, handshake, body language, like all of that different type of stuff comes, you know, becomes valuable. Sure. And, yeah. and many times, you know, life and death, you know, in the prison, in the prison setting. So 
it's like a highly developed, you know, it's, you know, it's something, you know, you become very, very intuitive about over, over a period of time. So, you know, there was little things like actually in one of my books, that's, that's, that's one of my books right there. It's called war, war and litigation, where I, I, I put a lot of my information in there about how I picked juries and stuff that I looked out for and stuff that I thought was significant and things of that nature. But like one of the things that I used to pick up on is that like if a juror came and nodded to defense, nodded to like the prosecutor and didn't nod at my lawyer or didn't nod at me, that right there, you know, would rub me wrong. Yeah. (laughs) To give him him a wink. Yeah. Like a secret handshake. Don't worry, buddy. I got you. Little stuff like that. You know, I I would pick up on just little stuff, you know, little stuff like that. Um, In one scenario, um, there was a woman who worked for a company that, for anybody who knows the space, for anybody who knows anything about, mass incarceration and how a lot of these companies are overcharging prisoners and their families for these phones, for the commissary and all that kind of stuff. It's a red flag. So she worked for that company. So, um, I, she did, other than that, she didn't really say anything that justified me actually, um, you know, getting her excluded without using one of my strikes. So, um, I asked her, I just kept asking her questions about that. And then she eventually said that um, she felt that once a person went to prison, that they relinquish they relinquish all their rights. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. You know, so, so oh. I was able to, you know, I was able to, you know, get her struck. But it's, you know, it's so many things that come into play. Like, just let's just suppose that I wasn't well read on that issue. And I didn't know that, you know, that's like, you know, like that lane the type of people that work in that type of business, you know, then I yeah, wouldn't have totally. you know, never thought that she might be against me. So, you know, it's just so much stuff that, you know, come into play with picking it, picking them juries. So you um, get a certain amount of strikes. So it sounds like it, they can say things that will get them eliminated. And then you could also, you have a certain amount of basically, like basically you can eliminate a certain number of people just on your own preference. Just because, yeah. For no for no reason. No explanation. I can just say, you know, struck, struck, struck. You get between like three or three or four, it depends. Three or four. Okay. Um, and criminal cases sometimes is I think it's six. Like you get six and they get six. Something like okay. that. You get four, they get four. You get three, they get three. It depends. Um, but yeah, you can strike them with no reason, or you can strike them with, you know, what's called a cause. And that means that you know, they've taken a position that is contrary to law. You cannot be on a juror. You cannot be on a jury um, with a mindset that is contrary to what the law is. Right. So, so yeah, I, and those and, and the play is to always focus on that. Focus on the things first that can get them, you know, off, you know, off the panel for something that. um Basically, you don't want to have to use your, your personal strikes. Right, right. Yeah. That is a wild process. Because, I mean, you, you think about, like, like over the past, like, four years, I've started – I'm in a position now where I'm interviewing people for jobs occasionally. And I've complained about it a lot because it's awkward and I don't know what to ask them. 
uh, like interviewing your own potential jurors, like people that are going to rule on like the, I mean, critical, like I said, life and death things in some cases, I cannot imagine the pressure and to be like a, you know, like an 18 year old person with no preparation, having to like go through that process and, and to be responsible for that type of decision. I mean, it's gotta be overwhelming. I mean, I imagine that's a big part of why you wrote your, your book, war and litigation, you said, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that kind of supposed, did you write that as like a resource for, for people who might be going through that process? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And not just for people like it's, it's, you know, it uses a courtroom theme and it has, you know, it implies principles of chess, war and courtroom, you know, uses all of that stuff interchangeably. I think I, I see them all interchangeably, but, um, you know, it's also just about mindset in life, you know, there's a lot of references to, um, you know, like boxers and runners and, and basketball players and things of that nature, just, um, you know, going in to any battle, to any platform with that winner mindset and preparing, you know, in that way, preparing like you're going in there to win, whatever it is. Yeah. So when you, you, Going in at 15, you, you decide to start studying. Uh, you end up getting you a uh, paralegal degree. Uh, like, what's the time frame for all this? When did you start really studying? When did you start, like, reading up on law and start and then start kind of pushing, pushing against the system? Um, well, I started I, I really started taking like learning how to read seriously when I was like 16, 15, 16, close to close to yeah, like that. That period, um, I was still in the county prison. Um, then when I was 16, I went, you know, upstate and just continued on. I mean, I don't think I take I took it any more seriously. It was just I just kept, you know, I kept to it. That was what I spent most of my time doing. I realized that I couldn't do really anything unless I knew how to read and write. So um, pretty much. You know, I, I mean, I still did my fun things. I played basketball and stuff like that. But um, when it came to, you know, personal time in my cell, like that's what I was doing. And even if it was just like cat, like I'm I'm like really, really good at drawing on other people's knowledge, you know, and, and, and information, like picking people's brains, so to speak. And um, and you, Casey, had spoke earlier about like the difficulty in. Um, that process, one of the difficulties in that process is shame, you know, like I was ashamed that I didn't know how to read and write and that all these other people around me did. And I felt like at that, age, even though it wasn't because I was dumb, it was just because I wasn't going to school that I was in these different placements. I was in the streets in and out of, you know, what I'm saying like I was always somewhere else. And I never stayed in school long enough, but I was always like really I was always really good at math. But um, as time went on, there were other subjects that I was actually really good at, but I was just not going to school. But at the same time, I still felt like at that age, these are things that I should know. I should know how to read. I should know how to spell. I should not have to ask a person, how do you spell this word? And then not everybody was not everybody was kind or understanding about um, me being behind, you know, in, in, in that area. So, I mean, that was one, of, you know, that was an obstacle, you know, not, sure. not, um, not 
feeling comfortable just asking anybody, you know, for help. And, um, you know, I've seen a lot of older guys, you know, in prison, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old that can't read or write, but can tell you about, you know, every NBA or, or NFL score, you know, anything that's, you know, like you would never suspect that this person can't read and write. Um, but, you know, the shame of admitting that, hey, yeah, I know all of this stuff, but I can't read and write. Not everybody's willing to do that. Sure. Um, but so, you know, between 16 and 19, you know, I took my um, I took my um, pretest for the GED. I failed it by two points the first time. Um, the second time I passed it. And then, you know, I took my GED test and I passed it when I was 19. Um, so also around that time, I was around 18, 18, 19. I started getting into the law also around that time. I filed my first lawsuit when I was around 21. Wow. That that's had to uh, be a nerve-wracking yeah, build-up. Hey, that uh, takes some guts, man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was the same thing. Like, I spoke to a lot of the guys who um, filed lawsuits before, you know, who did a lot of studying and, you know, all of that different type of stuff. And then, um, you know, over a period of time, it's just like, um, you know, life was so real, like the struggle was so real, the hostility between me and the administration. And I don't like to use the word the guards because it wasn't just the guards with me. It was literally the administration, like the people in power, the people who made decisions didn't like me because I was good at writing letters and organizing people and, you know, all of those different type of things. Like I could really put pressure on them. So, um, you know, as that became real, I just became more serious about understanding, you know, the, the system and why it worked the way it worked. Um, so, you know, that 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 has always worked against them, like in court where I'm able to explain to the jury, you know, like, hey, like this is, you know, like this is what's going on. Like this is what's really happening. Like, you know, you must so, be pretty yeah. comfortable in front of a courtroom at this point then. Well, I am now, yeah. I mean, I wasn't obviously. I wasn't, you know. I wasn't always. Actually, a friend of mine, she, um, she was recently, um, going into a big meeting with her job, and um, she's like, "What do I do?" You know, like I've never been in a situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I always, I always tell people this. Um, I used to talk to myself in the mirror, like a lot. Not all the cells had mirrors, though, but um. You know, whenever I did, and even if I didn't have a mirror, I would still pretend that I was in the courtroom, that I was talking to the jurors, that I was talking to the judge, and that they were objecting and they were saying this and saying that, you know? So um, I feel <laughs> like um, that process is good for anything, whether you want to go talk to a girl that you got a crush on, um, you know, whether it's the courtroom whether it's getting pumped up for a fight, you know, whether it's getting, you know, getting pumped up to go to the gym and work out, whatever it is, like, you know, what you tell yourself is what you're going to believe. Yeah. Man, one of the things I feel like I, I, I think I came across in your story is um, at one point you organized uh, like a peaceful protest uh, in prison. Is this, am I on the right track there? And you yeah. like that so much? That was, you ended uh, up with new charges pushed on you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so basically, I mean, 
actually like a lot of that actually stemmed from um the animosity that they had towards me. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. So there was there was a lot of issues at that particular prison, SCI Dallas. It's a terrible prison. It's a it terrible kind of like accountability very much. Yeah. You said the accountability? Yeah. They don't like people who hold them accountable. That's yeah, that's a that's an issue. I mean, especially like where so many of them had this mindset that the people who they oversee are beneath them. And many of them have, you know, this, um, you know, this attitude that because they're in these positions of power, that they're above the law or that you cannot question them. You know, I mean, about the simplest things, sometimes like it's just it's as simple as, um, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. And, you know, well, the officer over here has said that I could, you know. It's it's as simple as that. Like something as simple as that can turn into this guard not liking you or you know taking actions to try to make your life difficult just because you know you contradicted something that he said that he's he, that he really is wrong about though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's terrible. But yeah, so so that incident, the, you know, SCI Dallas, we became known as the Dallas Six. It was six of us. Um, I mean, it was all, it was actually a whole lot of people, but when it came down to the come down, it was six of us, you know, six of us left. But, um, you know, it was, it was a whole lot of abuse, um, physical, mental, um, you know, they was putting us in torture chairs, um, spraying us, denying us food, cutting our water off, um, denying us water for days at a time, um, ransacking ourselves, destroying our documents. I mean, this was happening to a bunch of individuals. Um, and so, you know, for a period of time, you know, I was just telling people, like, listen, just file these complaints, you know, send these complaints to these organizations, have, you know, have your family call, so forth and so on. So, you know, we're slamming them with phone calls, slamming them with complaints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, building a record up. So one of the organizations ended up doing a report that was like 93 pages long about that prison. You know, now the organization, like I had a well-known affiliation with them. So when the report came out, they looked at it like I was behind the report. The report was sent to senators, state senators, representatives, police departments, so forth and so on. Like just everybody just putting them on notice as to the allegations that were being made, you know, by the prisoners at that, you know, at that facility. So, um, you know, after that, after they found out about the report, they just, you know, they they turned it up. You know, they became they became even, you know, even worse. So, you know, it got to a point where we felt like, you know, our lives was in danger. They took one, of you know, one of the guys and put him in a freezing cold room, opened all of the windows up and put him in a torture chair for 18 hours straight. What, um, what is a torture chair? It is. They call it a restraint chair, but it's a chair that they sit you in. Is 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 it's a very it's very very hard. It's a hard chair, and it has all these straps. It, it looks like something that you might see, you know, somebody get put in in outer space or something. Like it's it's, it's straps here, straps here, straps here, straps here, straps here, straps on your feet, and then you're just like this, you know, for hours oh and hours. Oh my god! Oof. 
Yeah. So, so it's like an American Airlines seat, but with restraints. <laughs> Along those lines. And, and, no, and no cushion. Now we're never going to get that God. American Airlines sponsorship, Casey. Jesus. I know. I'm, well, I'm sorry. I regret that already. <laughs> it's, uh, so, like, okay, so you spend hours and hours in one of these chairs. Like, what does your body feel like when you finally get let loose? I mean, are your, your legs just atrophied or? Yes, yeah, it's, it's terrible, man. I mean, you feel like you're about, you feel like you're walking in like a 200-year-old body. Oh, so I, I'm curious because, like, you met a lot of prison guards over the years and prison officials and things, I'm sure. Why, why is this? I'm sure it's a mix, right? It, I'm sure that there's a, a portion of people who are just, they're just sadistic people, and that's what appeals to them about that job and that position and stuff. But there's a lot of people, does the environment and that authority that they have over people, does it create sadistic people? Do you think I that could, it pulls people, like somewhat regular people in and spits out a psychopath or? Nah. Um, that's a hard, I mean, you could never, you could, I don't know. You know, I don't know how you can answer that question. Um, but I, I feel like, um, like I know a lot, especially like right now, even on my, on my TikTok, right? When I post stuff about the prisons, a lot of prison guards, ex-prison guards come on there and say, he's telling the truth. That, that is why I quit. That is why I left. So I feel like the people who are really not for that will not stay there. You've yeah, it's empathy, like unsustainable. You're not going to stomach it. Yeah, like, you know, it's not about to turn you into something that is not you. Like, you know, um, it, 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 if you don't support it and you see that it's doing something to you that's contrary to what you're inclined to, then you'll leave, you know? Um, that's That's what I believe in general. I believe that people are going to be who they are. So that position that it's almost like that position weeds out anyone who could be decent after a certain amount of time. Like even yeah, if people it, get into it. it, it I mean, it kind of like like what Casey was saying earlier, it's like um, you know, that that pressure, that 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 code, that that blue line code of silence, like don't go against this person. Like there there are actually cases. Um, I often use these cases in my litigation where the prison guards are being attacked by other prison guards for telling the truth about something that happened for, for verifying or validating a claim made against, you know, the prison guard, they being called rats. They're throwing cheese, um, throwing, throwing cheese on, on, on her trays in the child hall, um, writing, um, writing rat on her locker, um, destroying her car. I mean, these are real life cases, real life incidents. So this is how they're controlling um, and silencing the staff members sure. who want to come forward and say, look, that's wrong. You know, it's like the infrastructure makes it almost impossible for somebody to like stand up and try to make changes in that system. Mm -hmm. And think about it. You know, I, I started looking at it like this, like just, you know, realistically, like here's a stranger who has this life, has this job, she don't like it or he don't like it, um, and they don't like what happened or what's happening to us, but I, ultimately, like, I'm a stranger to this person, 
And this is their livelihood that feeds their, you know, feeds their children, um, you know, gets the medical care. They plan to be here for the next 20 years and they have the choice to verify what I'm saying is true or to say, I don't I don't know. I didn't see it. I don't I don't know. And, yeah. and that's the situation that they're put in, you know, that's so wild. So you start pushing really against the system about you said 21. So you're six years in. So what for the net? That's like another. You said you were in there for 23 years. Mm-hmm. So did you spend I mean, you spent seven. Did you really you spent 17 years really just like pushing their buttons? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. 17. I was I was in solitary confinement for 17 years straight. Oh, that's my God. Unbelievable. So for 17 years, you got out for an hour a day. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah. How do you even have your wits about you, man? I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's how do you avoid, like, how do you avoid, I mean, you seem like a disciplined driven dude, but how do you avoid despair? Yeah, you don't. I mean, you don't like, I, I feel like everybody goes through same thing. It's like, like all of us have lost important people in our lives. Right. Um, whether through death or, you know, whatever the case may be, all of us, you know, many of us have, you know, people who have passed away in our life that we love, right? But not all of us look at those deaths the same way. So I look at it like in solitary confinement and in prison in general, we're all going to go through a lot of the same things, maybe not as as extreme as mine. My case is extreme, but we're all going to experience a lot of the feelings, you know, of loneliness you know, despair, frustration, anger, you know, like all of those different types of things. But we still all have a choice on what we're going to do with those emotions and what we're going to do with them after they pass. And I just think that I've made different decisions. I've made different choices on how to view my situation and how to view, you know, the opportunities that exist you know, in the future, you know, um, one of the things that I had that I knew that they had no control over was my imagination. And, um, and, and what I told myself, what I, what I told myself was more important than anything that anybody else had to say about me, whatever they wrote, like all the lies that they write, all the stories that they put out there. I knew they had the upper hand. Their story gets out way faster than my story gets out. Uh, it goes to much more credible sources than mine do. Um, and I understood that, you know, um, and a lot of things that I study in terms of, you know, war, media, chess, you know, all of those different things like chess actually, you know, disciplined me in a major way. It taught me about patience. It taught me about, you know, like they make a move. I make a move. Sometimes you got to wait. Sometimes it gets bad. Sometimes even though your opponent has the upper hand, they're going to make mistakes. If you just keep making the right moves, if you keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, then your opponent, you know, will in many cases get so cocky or comfortable in what they're doing that they make a they make a mistake that's going to cause you to win. And, um, you know, I look at that the same. That's how I looked at our relationship. You know, I knew what they were doing and I just, you know, I just got to a point where I was just like, okay, I I just gotta, I gotta play this out and uh, I gotta take my time and 
You know, even when it's even when it's dark, I got to make the right move. Even if they're doing the wrong thing, I know they're doing the wrong thing. I have to make the right moves. Most people have a, a hard time filing a grievance to HR about bad management. So I'm pretty impressed by what you managed to do in 17 years against the system it's that's to get you. <laughs> yeah. So when you how you filed, I mean, how, I mean, how throughout those years, how often and were you were you putting? So actually, let me take a step back because you mentioned like at one at, at times working with a lawyer. Uh, going through jury selection, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, you got to a point where you started defending yourself. Right, um, right, right. Didn't yeah. have, so you acted as your own lawyer. You didn't have a lawyer working with you, or did you do this as a kind of a team right. thing? How, how did that work, well, and what was I, it like when I, you got I, into that? I, I literally, like, I be, I've had so many different cases. Like, when I'm talking, I'm just referencing a bunch of different cases at, you know, at the same time. But, yeah, there's been times when I, I've had a lawyer um, there's been times when there was just me, no lawyer, no, you know, nobody sitting there, just me. Um, and, um, yeah. Do you have a, how many, throughout those years, I mean, it, you might not have the number at the top of your head, but and that's fine if you don't. Like, how many times did you enter into a courtroom to either, you know, either defend yourself against allegations or through lawsuits that you filed against the, the state or the facility? Probably around twenty, I would oh say. Oh my god, <laughs> that kept you busy though. At least must have made time yeah, go by faster. I'll probably say around, probably around twenty, not twenty trials, but you know, appearances, you know, you know, arguing motions, evidentiary hearings, you know, trials, so forth and so on. I mean, at least twenty, I would say. That's incredible. So we were talking earlier about you know solitary as a as a control mechanism and it seems it seems like one of the factors that goes into controlling a, a prison and dom you know establishing dominance over a group of people or whatever i mean is is dehumanizing them to some extent and like what what are some of the things that you see in the prison system that are just dehumanizing and and just like by all accounts just need to change like certain practices like that um, man, the first thing that come to my mind is the strip searches. Yeah. Man, that's the first thing, man. Um, like even when I got out, like I was so, um, now mind you, I lived in a cell by myself for 17 years. So I didn't like having, I didn't like having cellmates. Um, and just those strip searches are very dehumanizing. Yeah. And, um, I guess in some cases they're necessary, but in many cases they're not. It's a tool. It's, it's, it's exactly. It's just like, you know, just like breaking a person's down, like break, breaking a person's spirit, as you said, like dehumanizing. Um, and, be, and because I because I study slavery, because I study, you know, all of that different type of stuff, um, you know, it was clear to me, like, why this stuff, you know, was happening. And why they were doing the things that they were mm -hmm. doing, and I think that that's actually one of the things that protected, you know, protected me and protected my mind from allowing it to have as much of an impact on me as it, you know, may have on other people. Is because I was aware of why it was being done, so I could guard yeah. my mind, you know, I could guard my mind against it. Um, and there was a study by a guy named Stuart Grassian, 
He is the leading expert on the adverse side effects of solitary confinement. And in there, he had part of his research was um, for political prisoners who in most cases, well, in all the cases that I know, are highly, you know, highly intelligent individuals who spend a lot of time in solitary confinement, are often targeted by the administration, you know, um, you know, discriminated against and so forth and so on because of their political beliefs, because of their notoriety or whatever the case may be. Um, but in his conclusion, people in solitary confinement, um, that solitary confinement has less of an impact on people who are intelligent than it does on people who are not. Interesting. And some of the examples he used were people who um, like come in with just like, you know, severe mental health issues and things like that. You know, there was there was a real big case of all the individuals in solitary confinement that were killing themselves, cutting themselves, swallowing razors and, you know, doing all that, doing all of that kind of stuff. That is how they were dealing with solitary confinement. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's dark stuff. So that it sounds like the the intelligence almost to you know kind of like what you're talking about with chess. You know, you see it as as a move that they're doing as a play, and you you were able to kind of rise above it because you understood what they were doing, and and, and you kind of thought about it with a future perspective, um, and it allowed you to to look look forward to something else, look to something else as opposed to just live in that moment and and dwell on the idea that this is where you were you're going to stay. Uh, mm-hmm. and so just being able to have that be have that kind of like next level thinking um, it sounds like it that was also motivating for for you. Uh, yeah, time. it was something that propelled me forward. It was something yeah. that you know I mean even the lawsuits to me like the lawsuits were you know all a part of you know, you know, them trying to break my spirit and me saying that I refuse, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's really what that's really what it, you know, really, what, really what it was for me. And something that was like very significant happened towards the end of, um, you know, my time in solitary confinement. They were having um, a hearing about whether to release me. You know, I was there. It was a bunch of staff members there. And, um, you know, they discussed all the different things that was going on in my life, all, you know, the progress I made and so forth and so on. Um, And the superintendent, the warden of the prison. And so, mind you, I had just won a lawsuit. I had just won a lawsuit before this hearing. So um, he was like, he said something along the lines like, um, you seem to be doing good. Because it was, you know, part of the discussion was, the adverse side effects of solitary confinement, why a person shouldn't stay in solitary confinement so long, why a person should be released and how they should be released and things of that nature. So his comment was, you seem to be doing good, you know, regardless, you know? And the thing, the the, the thing, like why that was, you know, um, bad is because for years, um, there were other staff members advocating for me to get out of solitary confinement, you know, for years. Um, and I made, I made like all kinds of accusations against them about lying, about fabricating paperwork, about, you know, all this different type of stuff. 
and they would just shoot me down and shoot me down, shoot me down. Yeah, that's absurd. It's absurd that any staff would get together and conspire against you and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. cetera. But then after I won the lawsuit and I proved it, not only did y'all conspire against me, y'all fabricate the documents, you lied, um, you, you assaulted me while I was handcuffed, you put false criminal charges on me, um, and not just on the lower level, just the prison guards, the higher level, their supervisor and their supervisors were a part of the conspiracy. I proved it. I proved it in the court of law. So now all of these things that I've been saying have been validated, you know, by by a jury, by a judge, by a judgment, by court documents. Like, what are you going to say now? You know, um, and it was really at that point where I felt like, um, you know, they understood that this is this was I was an individual that they should just leave alone. Yeah. You know, they just didn't want any more lawsuits, Andre. That's yeah, why like, like, get this guy out of here. You're a pest. I guess we'll release you. <laughs> <laughs> what it's, was that? I mean, like for me, you know, to, to, to get to the point where like it was, you know, some peace, you know, between us was good. But, you know, um, I didn't like the fact that everybody else was still going through it, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I was, you know, I was still helping people file grievances, you know, and helping people file lawsuits. And, you know, my name, you know, my lawsuits and all of that different stuff is is in the in the prison computer. So people were like, oh, he 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 sued him in one. I'm I'm gonna sue him too, you know. So that was like, you know, um, one of the one of the um, backlashes um, of a successful lawsuit against the system. Sure, is yeah. That people now see, believe that they can win. They don't think that oh, this is just they. You know, they. You know, you can't do nothing. No, I'm I'm telling you, and I'm showing you that you can win. Yeah, yeah. Show you them the cracks in the system, and uh, once they see them, they. They want to have at it. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's why you see just these strange, like, uh, footwork that they make people go through before they'll finally release them. You know, even beyond the point where, like, it's obvious that this person is is not guilty of whatever they were originally in prison of. The, the one that comes to mind is, like, the West Memphis Three. You know, it was clear early on that those guys didn't kill the boys that they were accused of, of killing, but they were stuck in this system for like 30 years. And the, the only way that they finally like let them out was they had to confess to the murders and then they commuted their sentences or so. It was like this crazy nonsensical thing that they made them go through. But the, the repercussions of saying, Oh, we screwed up, you know, and, and releasing them, the 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 worm the can of worms that that opens for them in a system where that seems to be so common is it's got to be a scary thing for them and I mean just like with you when you know other prisoners realizing like oh I I do have recourse here if I file lawsuits and things like that mm-hmm. now it, it's 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 sad like you you spoke about like just being able to come forth and say you know what man we messed up, you know? Like, I mean, like, we know this just from our personal relationships. 
just from person to person, husband to wife, friend to friend, just to yeah. be able to come forward and be like, look, man, I was wrong. <laughs> like, you know, I was wrong. I apologize. I was wrong. You know, that goes a long way, especially in a situation where somebody has spent 10, 15, 20 years of their life in prison. And instead of you coming forth saying, look, man, here go $10 million. We were wrong. We're sorry. Anything we could do to fix it, here goes some counseling, here goes, you know, whatever the case may be. You want to save money and save face at the expense of this person's life and then make it even worse by making them admit to something that you know that they didn't do just because you're giving them a choice to admit or get out after 30 years. I mean, like, who's going to stay in after 30 years? And all the thing they got to say is, all right, I did it. You know, we all know I didn't do it, but we know that this is the only way you're going to let me out. Yeah, man, I was just watching this show recently um, that dealt with uh, on Netflix. I dealt with kind of that that type of stuff. It was someone who was uh, facing charges for something, and they were like, the, the idea was like, look, you're going to go away for 30, but if you confess to this, you'll get out in 20. And the person's like, but I didn't do that. But like, if it looks like for for damn sure you're going away for 30 years and you dangle that 20 year carrot in front of their face. It's like mm. you will get, I mean, that's such coercion and you will get people to admit to things they didn't do. Mm. And then you get to go, everyone sh- case closed. We get to move on. We, you know, justice was served. Mm-hmm. I, I don't you know. About Harvey Weinstein again. Dude, yeah. you gotta drop this. <laughs> <laughs> Man, when you, so when you got out, um, when, you know, when you're in that final, like, First of all, when you're in that situation, when they, I don't know, what do they do? do? They slam a gavel when they tell you you're going to be free. And are you free right after that? What was, what's that? I got to know what that. Well, in my, like. in my situation, no, um, because I had different cases from different jurisdictions and stuff like that. Um, but when I, I knew six months in advance, hold on, we talking about solitary or out of prison? Out of prison, but we okay, take it to yeah. solitary too, man. Even if you want to speak to that, because that sounds like it was around, like some kind of close to when you got out of prison too. Yeah, well, um, I got out of solitary like three years before I got out of prison. Oh, it's three years. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I can't. I, I I really can't remember if they tell you at the hearing for solitary. I can't remember if they told you at the hearing. I think it's more like you know. Pretty much anything they keep you on edge, you know, they keep you in suspense and things, you know, things like that. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure, like, at the hearing, it was just like, you know, it was looking good for you. We're going to circulate it. Oh, yeah, there was like a vote sheet, like a vote sheet process. Like, we're going to get some signatures and so forth and so on. And we're going to send it to these people. And But it's looking good for you. You know, you got my support and, and you know, like that type of thing. Um, but I can't tell you that I remember exactly Did somebody come to me and, and, and tell me, yeah, you know, like everybody signed off. Like, I just I really don't remember. Um, but um, it was it was real good to get out. But when I when I got out is when I start seeing the damage that was done. Yeah. Um, you know? as, so speak, speak specifically to that, to, to you. Um, is that what you're talking about? The damage that had been done yeah, to you? Yeah. Emotional yeah. and like, mental damage. Yeah, for example, um, just like just being around people. 
you know, like being socially isolated like that for a long time and then being around people, like people walking behind you, people close up to you, like you don't know, like you've seen the worst of people. So you believe that people are capable of anything, just doing sadistic stuff for no re for seemingly no reason at all. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was just like I'm extra alert. You know, I'm paying attention to everything. I'm not letting nobody walk behind me. Um, you know, I don't really want to shake hands. If I don't trust you and I don't want to, and I don't really know you, like we can't really like shake and hug type, you know, like keep your distance, you yeah. know, like so like like guys that I knew were like, you know, like just like calm down, man. We know you just got out, man. Just, you know, trying to bring me back. Yeah, yeah. You know, I actually met um actually met one of my closest friends to this day that way. Um, I saw him in, I just saw him in an environment. I knew that his demeanor and his behavior was from being in that environment. He didn't know nobody. He wasn't talking to nobody. And, you know, so I just approached him and I was like, you know, like one of the most popular guys. So it was kind of like a privilege to be approached by me. And I just, you know, approached him, embraced him and helped him. And, you know, just, you know, try to help them the same way guys helped me. Yeah. What year? What year was it that you got out? 2017. Okay. That yeah, that's not even that Crazy. long ago, man. Yeah. So one of the things oh, that's out of solitary? No, out of prison. I got out of prison last year. Just wow, last okay. year, man. That's yeah, in December. I got out in December. December the 15th. I was actually supposed to get out December 1st. Um, but what was it? Um, what did they say? Um Oh, coronavirus. Uh, at that at the halfway house that I was going to be released to, there was a coronavirus outbreak. Okay. At at the halfway house, so they could not release me to the halfway house until what? Like two weeks after everyone so, quarantined. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so I got out on the fifteenth instead of the first, and it was like it was crazy because it was like reporters. And all types of people and stuff like that at the bus station. My family, we was having like a, a, a coming home party, and all those people was there. That must have been amazing, man. Yeah. Well, it wasn't amazing because they switched my date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got all these balloons. <laughs> Dude, I'm not going to stay inflated until two weeks from now either. It's a bummer with balloons, man. Uh, that the world changed so much while you were in prison i mean it's like it's like emerging on a totally different planet you know 23 years later that with the pace of change in today you know and then to walk out in the middle of a pandemic and election and all of that i mean that's a wild time to jump back into society i mean was it was it difficult like trying to find your rhythm outside of prison yeah, uh, I actually did a, a, a TikTok video. It's, it's actually very popular um, talking about how I was afraid to cross the streets when I got out because I felt like the cars were moving like super, super fast. And yeah, I felt like they was like super fast. And I couldn't tell, I couldn't gauge how long it was going to take this car to get to where I was trying to cross the street at. So I would just wait, I would just wait 
until it was like super, super clear and then go across the street. Man, that is, I can't believe, I, I honestly didn't realize it was that recent. And that's so interesting to me. I, so one of the things that is that you hear a lot about uh, when it comes to prison reform and the way that prisoners are treated is uh, all the problems that come with being released. Uh, it sounds like you have maybe some support systems outside uh, that maybe other people don't uh, when it comes to family. But when you get out, I mean, they, they'll, they'll put you, they'll put you away for 30 years and then send you out into the streets with a dollar to your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you said you're going to halfway house. I'm, I don't even know if that's the case for everybody. Uh, but what, I mean, getting out, uh, not only reacclimating to society, but finding like, but those support systems, finding a place to, to live. Um, what's going on with your life now? Like how, how did you get yourself kind of settled back in? Um, well, like you said, like I had a lot of resources. Um, I had a lot of resources. So my situation was different. But at the same time, um, like I think that what people took for granted is that, yeah, I had these resources, but I do not know how to send an email. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to I don't know how to use this iPhone 12. You know, um, I do not know how to. Um, pay my utility bill. I don't know how to get a credit card. I don't know how to go take my driver's test. I don't know how to do an online application. I don't know how to do pretty much anything online, you know? So I think, you know, people took that for granted. So like when I felt my, when I first felt my driver's test, I felt it because I didn't know how to work the lights and stuff like that. The, 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 um, the emergency breakers and all of that. I didn't know how to, I didn't know, I knew how to drive. I knew how to get on the road and drive, but I didn't know all of the other little details, how to turn the, the back windshield wiper on. And, you know, I didn't know how to do none of that stuff. And people didn't, people didn't prepare me. People see me being, you know, victorious in all of these other areas of my life that I've mastered over the years. But so they assume that, oh, yeah, you'll figure it out. You know, no, you know, like, tell me something, like, teach me something, you know? Yeah, right. So, um, you know, that that was that was one of the things that that, you know, worked heavily against me of, you know, coming home to a good situation. Like I had somewhere to live. Um, You know, I bought a BMW soon when I got out, you know, I mean, so, you know, like far as that, like my life was, you know, cool. As far as that, like just having resources, having access to money and stuff like that wasn't a problem. But yeah, it sounds like some of the lawsuits you won kind of helped set you up with like financially when you got out and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, but like I said, like, you know, using the phone, online applications, applying for a job, you know, like I didn't know how to do nothing. Yeah, every day. It's that's like that's literally that. The everyday stuff that people spend probably six hours a day on looking, doing stuff on their phone, whatever. Like, I mean, that's all a brand new experience for you after mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. put away at 15, coming out mm-hmm. 23 years later. Yeah, that's unbelievable, man. Mm-hmm. So, what's on the horizon for you? Like, what's your focus now? And, and what, like, what are you working towards now that you're out? And it, it sounds like you're you know, a lot of activism and stuff on behalf of prisoners and things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, oh, so, you know, um, there's a whole lot going on. Um, they're doing a movie 
Um, they're doing a movie and movie TV series and um, book about my life. No wow. way. Mm-hmm. That's incredible, yeah. man. Yeah, I just got um, – there's two streaming companies right now that's – that want to do that want to do a um, TV series, you know, um, about my life. Um, I got a hundred city book tour coming up soon when they, you know, let me. Uh, I guess about forty, like forty something more days, I'll be able to move around outside the outside the district. Okay. Um, you know, I started my company, Supreme Network. Yeah. So that's, you're doing your book tour. What's um? I want to hear about your new book. Tell us a little bit about that, and then let's. Talk about uh, what you're doing with Supreme Network. What's the new? What's well, the that's book the that's touring? the that's the book that I'm touring with. War and litigation. This one right here, um, and it's you know primarily about how to file and win lawsuits in court, how to represent yourself in court. But as I was telling you earlier, it's also about um, having a winner's mindset in life in general. Um, just how to think, you know, how to think when. And, and organize, you know, your, your preparation in your mind, you know, around whatever you're trying to accomplish. Um, and of That's course, awesome. like my story, you know, my story is in there as well. So I definitely want to use use my story um, as a cautionary tale um, for kids that think that um, the street life is the way or that prison, you know, that prison that you get some type of stripes um, our credentials for being in prison, but also, you know, as an as an inspirational tool to show people that no matter what you came from and no matter how bad your life was, that you still got options and you still got the choice to make, you know, make a better outcome, to bring about a better outcome. And if my, if my life story is not proof enough for you, then I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, man, that's amazing. Um, what about the Supreme Network? What are you doing there? What's that all about? Social and economic power. Uh, one of the things I learned is that um, a lot of the abuse that I suffered um, and a lot of situations I found myself in is because I didn't have money because I because I was basically nobody. That I was I wasn't connected to anything um, powerful. I didn't know anybody powerful. My dad wasn't Obama. My, you know, my brother wasn't a lawyer, you know, so forth and so on. So I've learned that, um, you know, in order to be considered seriously, to be treated fairly in court um, and to get justice, that you need money and you need power. And, um, you know, Supreme Network is about establishing equality for the people that have no power. That's awesome. So the goal is just to link people together and kind of mm-hmm. compile resources within a community mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. awesome. Do you see any, uh, any future litigation in, going on for you? Looking at uh, pursuing law in any way at all? Or are you, uh, who's got a black guy next? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, um, I really, um, I really got some, I got something big in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got when you do that, something big, we'll have to, uh, I'm reaching back out. We're gonna have you on here all about it. Yeah, you gonna you gonna hear about it too. It's big. <laughs> I, I'm curious. Uh, you know, you talked about like media attention and things like that around your case and and the role that that played in the in the outcome and stuff like that. Are are there some 
some people or some public officials that were instrumental in in helping you get through this situation and stuff. I mean, anybody that that has just been like a, a godsend and what they've been able to help you do while I was in prison. Yeah, for sure. Um, Dr. Jolie Brahms. She is a forensic psychologist out of uh, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, she um she she was like a major help, man. She saved me. She saved me seventeen years of my life. If it wasn't wow, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for her testimony, um, the seventeen years that I got sentenced to in the feds, um, I would be doing that right now. Wow. Um, but you know, aside from that. She sent me books, you know, she sent me like motivational books, inspirational books. Um, you know, she she wrote to me, she encouraged me, like she was like a real, you know, a real friend to me. Um, so you know, she was a big help. You know, my guy Ryan, who I met through her, Ryan McManus, he's the uh founder and president of Share Mobility. Um, great friend, you know, great support. Um, you know, my grandma, you know. When I when I ain't have nothing, you know, when I ain't have five dollars, my grandma was there for me, sending me twenty dollar money orders, fifty dollar money orders. Um, you know, I mean, even you know, like a lot of the guys in prison, you know, a lot of a lot of them, a lot of them guys kept me out of trouble, kept me on the right track, told me I was greater than, you know, the label that they put on me. They told me that they saw something else in me that I was different. And I always remember that. I always appreciated that. The thing that they said to me made me look deeper in myself and, and deeper at myself. So, I mean, I feel like, man, along, along the way, man, a lot of people came and played and played certain roles. So my girlfriend was actually a prison guard. Oh, no way. Yeah. I, we was together for seven years. Um, but, you know, and like, you know, it faded, you know, over a period of time. I mean, it was seven years. I was in solitary confinement the whole time. So we didn't have a whole lot of a relationship, but, you know, she was just a real, you know, she was, you know, a real, real good person. And, um, you know, um, everybody, you know, like she, she was a major, you know, a major part in that process. It was a lot of people. Was, some people just came in my life for three months. You know, like I appreciated that. I appreciated that time, you know, that we spent. So like, you know, along along the lines, it's like everybody played a role. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people played roles. Um, you know, I, I named some names because they were like there for a long time. And I'm like still friends with them now. You know what I mean? But again, there were people who I met and, and, and were connected with for a shorter period of time that were just as, you know, impactful or important, you know, in my story. That's awesome, man. I love hearing that. And just knowing that like, there's always so many people behind, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, and now look what you're doing. You know, they're all part mm -hmm. of that too. And mm -hmm. you get to, you know, do your book tour, you get to do the Supreme network. I mean, you're doing a lot, man. Uh, I'm excited to see what comes down the pipeline. Uh, your story is very inspiring, very impressive. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. We appreciate your time. Yeah, man, story. Thanks, for, thanks for doing this. Yeah, for um, sure. You got anything else? You I don't know if you got anything you wanted to say before we close out. Um, or, uh, I, I mean, you got your, I don't know, plug your socials, whatever. Uh, anything you want to finish with before we take off here? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, my social media, my my uh, TikTok, I am Andre97. That's also my Instagram. And, you know, our website is www.supremenetwork.org. Um, you know, that's where all my books and stuff are, my T-shirts and stuff like that. Um, you know, follow me on Instagram, follow me on TikTok. I'm viral on TikTok. They love me on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Good. There's like one decent person that's getting some attention there. Yeah, I know. It's not some team busting some other team's balls for not being woke enough on TikTok. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, so it was awesome. It's awesome talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks, man. This is this is a pleasure. Um, this was great. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time.